We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. So we're going to do something different on today's show, and that's in honor of the release of my new book, Roosevelt Care, How Social Security is Sabotaging the Land of Self-Reliance. Now, in a previous interview I did with my friend Adam Edmondson, I talked a lot about uh, the history of America before and after the welfare state, and that's a lot of what my new book covers, so I won't go over that ground again here today. Um, what I do want to talk about is one idea that seems very similar um, or uh, consistent with the kind of approach that I advocate taking in the fight against the welfare state, but I actually think is very different and reveals the weaknesses in the conventional approach. Now, I have been very strenuous in saying that the problem with the welfare state is moral. It's fundamentally an immoral system. And that to fight the welfare state successfully, you, you must be able to challenge it on moral grounds, not just saying that it's too expensive, not just saying that it has perverse incentives, not just saying that it has us headed for a debt crisis. Now, of the people who are making the argument and sounding the alarm about the welfare state, one of the phrases that's started to gain a lot of cachet is that the welfare state crisis represents generational theft and that generational theft obviously is something immoral is exploitation of young Americans and therefore we should do something about it. Now there is something good about this and I do think it finding that it is trying to tap into a real moral issue and it's certainly true that there's something uniquely bad about what's happening to today's millennials and then their children or future children. And that's why I do put the stress on what I call the debt draft, uh, which is the uniquely destructive effects of the welfare state today and in the decades ahead as costs explode and the ability to pay for them collapses. But I think this idea of generational theft is extraordinarily problematic. And one way to see that is to just think, to look at what they advocate as the solution. So in general, when there's theft, the solution is, well, stop stealing. And so you might think that people who um, object to generational theft would say, well, let's get rid of the welfare state. But you have to get clear on what they mean by theft, first of all. So the theft is not, in their view, it's not the mere fact that young people are taxed in order to support the welfare benefits of older Americans. That per se is viewed as legitimate and good. For instance, it was also true that our parents and grandparents were taxed in order to support the social security system, the Medicare system, but that, that is not viewed as generational theft. And why not? 
Because what generational theft is focused on is not the fact that you are taxed to support the system. What it's focused on is an imbalance, as they would put it, between the taxes you're going to be forced to pay today and the so-called benefits you're going to receive tomorrow. So let's make that a little more concrete. If the first few generations of Americans paid relatively small amounts of taxes during their working years and received relatively large amounts of handouts later, well, that's not generational theft. That's a wonderful benevolent gain. On the other hand, given that today's young people are going to pay incredible amounts and receive either break-even levels or even less than they paid in the system, that is theft. Now, that's a completely different way of looking at it than the idea that if you earn money, you have the right to decide how to spend it. What it basically says is that the government can do whatever it wants to your income just so long as at the end of the day, you end up better off. And of course, if we're talking about a welfare system that gives everybody handouts, that's a mathematical impossibility. You can't take from everybody and give to everybody and everybody be better off. And indeed, one of the things that goes on in a welfare state is that it makes it almost impossible for the vast majority of Americans to know whether they are net taxpayers or net handout receivers. This is a point covered by William Vogley, who was interviewed on the uh, debt dialogues a few weeks back. The, but that is, I think, the, a completely wrong way to look at it. No, the, what the theft consists of is that your money is taken from you. And theft doesn't become non-theft if decades later you get a certain amount of money back. Um, any more than, I mean, if you just, if some, if a thief came by and stole your car today and 50 years later comes and drops off some other car on your garage, you'd say, well, I mean, this is the, I can't complain. This is not theft. He gave me something in return. Now, the deeper, the deeper issue at stake here is that the whole generational theft perspective is that the welfare state is good and that we need to make it more fair and affordable. And yeah, I mean, if your view is that the only problem is if your taxes are uh, higher than your, your handouts, then that is going mean, to, that very well can be your conclusion. Now I want to delve into this idea, this idea that the welfare state is good if only your handout is bigger than your benefit. And I want to do it and what I want to really stress and highlight to separate my view from the generational theft view is my view is that the welfare state is not good for anybody. It was not good for our great grandparents. It was not good for our grandparents and it was not good for, uh, and it would not be good for us even if we got more money out of the scenario. So, Let's start then by just looking at the financial aspect of all of this. Part of what I want to suggest here is that you cannot simply compare the amount of money that the welfare state gives you with the amount of money that the welfare state directly takes from you in the form of taxes. That those are not the whole story. One of the most important books ever written on economics and probably the best first book for anybody to start with is a book by Henry Hazlitt called Economics in One Lesson. 
And the one lesson which he takes from another great economist, Frederick Bastiat, is that in assessing an economic activity or policy, you can't look at just the most obvious, most straightforward consequences. You have to look at the full picture. That is the consequences, the total consequences across time. And in my book, Roosevelt Care, I have a section called Social Security, a Weapon of Mass Destruction. And what I do in there is I try to really look at the full cost, the full financial economic cost of Social Security. Uh, now, I can't put precise numbers on it although I give some indications of what those precise numbers are. But I just want to, without going into all of the details, indicate some of the costs that aren't factored in when what we hear is that um, Social Security is a benefit for, say, the baby boomers or for their parents' generation. And part of... So one of the claims you'll often hear is something like... uh, Social Security, if we took it away, um, would increase poverty by X. And this is just another example of the same error. It's an example of we treat the only effect of Social Security is it takes money out of some pockets and puts it into others, whereas there's a whole wide array of negative economic effects. So the most obvious effect, of course, is, however, the direct money taken in taxes. And... Let's start by being clear on what that is. So if we're just going to talk about Social Security, if you look at your paycheck, most people are shocked by how much money is taken out for Social Security. Um, But I think their shock will increase when they realize they need to double that amount. So the money directly taken out of your pocket from Social Security is uh, 6.2% of your income. On the first hundred thirteen thousand seven hundred dollars of your income, but you need to double that amount because half of the Social Security payroll tax is paid for by your employer, but it's only nominally paid paid for by your employer because, as everybody in the Social Security world knows, and every economist will tell you, uh, that amount is really deducted from the wages that you would have been paid if there was no payroll tax. So 12.4% of your income is where we start. Just to give some sort of concreteness for the average American, uh, for the median American household, that's they make about $51,000. And Social Security then is going to be taking more than $6,000, about $6,300 out of their pockets directly each year. Now, if that were the only cost, so that would be pretty bad. But, of course, that is far from the whole story. And part of the, the full story is that Social Security and the Social Security taxation, it reduces how much wealth is produced in the first place. You can take it. Take a different kind of case. Let's set aside Social Security for uh, a minute. Imagine that you're just, uh, you know, a farmer, and you're farming, and you have a field, and let's say you have ten acres, and year after year, somebody comes and just takes two out of your ten acres every single year. Now, 
might you, after a while, decide, I'm not going to produce 10 acres. Maybe I'll just produce 8 acres. Why bother uh, tending towards these 10 acres when I'm not going to get that uh, too? And the point is that how much you produce and the kinds of decisions you make are affected by what happens to you after you produce, what happens to your property. So one of the things that Social Security does is it dampens the incentive to produce by taking uh, some of what you earn you have less incentive in order to earn it to work as hard to work as long and indeed one of the things that social security does is it incentivizes some of the most productive workers workers with the greatest knowledge and experience to leave the labor market perhaps earlier than they otherwise would so that they can take their social security handout uh you know when people when social security was first created most people weren't living significantly beyond 65 years of age i mean today people are in, tend to be in good health for 5 even 10 15 years after they hit 65 and for them to be incentivized to leave the labor force is enormously it, it definitely curtails how much wealth gets produced now there's a second effect, and this one is probably even greater and more destructive, and it's a little complex. So I'll, let me explain it this way. The money, so Social Security transfers wealth from young workers to older Americans, Americans uh, in their 60s or older. Now, as a general rule, when you're younger, you're, you generally save a higher proportion of your income. And then when you're older, when you're at retirement, you're drawing down in your savings. Well, what Social Security does is it takes away a lot of the money that younger people would use in order to save and transfers it to people who are consuming it. It reduces their ability to save. And on top of that, it reduces their incentive to save. Why save as much when I'm told that the government is going to be providing me with money in old age. It's going to be providing me with the retirement benefits. Now, this is incredibly, incredibly economically destructive because it is savings and investment that makes us more prosperous economically. When we save and invest, where what happens? Well, resources, instead of being used up, they go into doing things like building new more efficient factories, going into research and development so that we can get new, better technologies, uh, funding startups, replacing old and outdated machinery and factories. All of that, all of that requires uh, the more savings and investment we have, the more of that we can do. And then in the long run, the more productive we become. But the welfare state by dampening the incentive and ability to save and invest by consuming more and more of our wealth makes us far less prosperous and productive than we would otherwise be. So again, let's take a, you know, a concrete case. I'm in my thirties. And so, uh, let's say there's a two, 3000 bucks that I was going to set aside and save during the year, but because of social security, it's taken from me and hand it to somebody who's, let's say, in their 70s. Now, are they going to save and invest it? Probably not. Probably they're going to use it for things like making a car payment, 
paying for vacation, paying for um, you know hospitalization. There's all sorts of things they're paying for, but what they're doing is consuming it. They're using it up. Now they might be using it for what for them are you know good respectable uses. Consumption is not per se a negative thing. We need to do it in order to live and enjoy our lives. But nevertheless, that doesn't add to prosperity. It doesn't add to production. And over the course of the rise of the welfare state, because of these incentives and restrictions, we've seen America's national savings rate decline from 15% in 1950 to uh, roughly zero today. In recent years, it's fluctuated between about negative 1% to positive 1%. And that what, what that represents is really a reduction in how we've gotten richer over time. And as Dan Mitchell talked about in one of our podcasts, even relatively small reductions in economic growth, when you compound them over time, can lead to radically different standards of living. And so he gives the example of if we had started, I think he said in the 1890s, if economic growth in America had just been 1% lower each year than than it was historically, then over the course of that 100 years or so when we move up to today we would have a lo- we would have the a standard of living about the level of mexico another way of saying that then is that if over the last 50 60 70 years um without the welfare state our economic growth had been just a percent higher each year we would be far richer including the elderly okay that is not the whole story even yet. Let's look at a couple of the other causes or rather consequences of uh, the welfare state on our economic standard of living. So one of the things that it does is it doesn't just reduce the amount of money or amount of wealth in the economy. It's also reducing what we can buy with those dollars because what it's doing is it's reducing innovation. That is because there's less capital, um, the money that would, could have gone and invested in new companies, say if we're talking about in 1980, a company called Microsoft, it might not be there. And so that there's companies that could have made incredible additions to our standard of living and way of life may not get funded. Now, Microsoft did. Uh, but there's no telling that the next Microsoft or the next Apple might have missed out on it because there was not the money available in order to fund them. There wasn't the capital. And still, we're not done because you also have to include the fact that um, what one of the consequences of the rise of the welfare state and of immense government spending is that a lot of it has been financed through inflation, which among other evils reduces the purchasing power of our, of our income and particularly our savings. Uh, and so the bottom line is that if you look at social security, we are far poorer, all of us, including the elderly, who alleged to benefit from Social Security are all far poorer than we would be had people been free to use to earn income to use it to support their lives. 
Now, I think this is an underestimate, but here's the best estimate I have found. So this is comes from uh, a, an economist, Edgar Browning. And so he estimates that by creating bad incentives and redirecting spending from investment to consumption, the entitlement state lowers the income of the average American by 25%. That's 25% before taxes, more than $4 trillion each year. Social security alone, according to Browning, for the average household means that they're earning $12,000 less each year before they've paid their social security taxes. So that's, uh, if we take, you know, an average, um, social security taxes costing an individual about $6,000 a year. If you have a family that, uh, is basically in the whole $24,000 a year, if they have, uh, two earners, the, I mean, that is a tremendous, tremendous burden. So it's no wonder then that so many of the elderly today are dependent on the government, are dependent on Social Security and Medicare. One of the things that I'm told when I advocate the abolition of the welfare state, the main objection is, well, what's going to happen to all the people during this transition? And the reason that there's such a worry is that the government has made whole generations of Americans who could have been self-supporting dependent on handouts from the government. We still, though, there's more to say then about the evil of the welfare state. But just to kind of put the, the final point on this financial aspect, the bottom line is that whatever the specific number, what we can know is that we would, that every productive person would have been better off without a wealth redistribution system. We would be better off if we had the security of knowing that that which we earned was not going to be taken and given to others. We would be all better off if we didn't live in a country headed for a welfare state debt crisis. Now, in the book, I address some objections to that, including one that you'll often hear, which is, look, if the welfare state is so destructive economically, then how come we're doing so well? And it's true that economic growth has continued throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, although we we're seeing today that it's um, becoming lower and lower. But the basic point is that we become better off despite the welfare state, not because of it. Uh, and just one indication of this that I think gives um, some of the evidence is if you plot out on a graph the increase of uh, American prosperity – it started long before 1934. Uh, it started during the mid-19th century. And um, the and so the, the notion that somehow the welfare state contributed to that is at least just on that basis dubious. That you can't say um, that, well, we've gotten better during the 20th century when we had a welfare state. So therefore the welfare state uh, is um, the cause of that. So, again, a lot more to say about the financial aspect, but I want to go to a wider evil, which, again, the generational theft argument doesn't address. And that is that taking your money away from you um, is just one aspect. It's one part of a more basic, wide-ranging evil. And that is what the welfare state does 
is it takes away our control over our own lives. It says that our own thinking about how to plan for retirement, about how to use our income, about how to educate ourselves and our children, about how to pursue health care. We're no longer fully free to make those assessments ourselves. Our judgment has to be subservient to the government who can tell us, no, you're going to um, get your health care through the government. Your health care will, cons- your health insurance will consist of A, B, C, and D. You're going to give a lot of your money to support other people's retirement. It's at every step, your individual choice is being trumped by the state in the name of the public interest. And the generational theft argument ignores all of that and indeed whitewashes it. Now, there's more to say about the generational theft argument, but I want to name one aspect that makes it, that stresses why it's an ineffective argument. And part of it is that what, when you present people with this example of generational theft is very often they don't see it as theft the welfare state, they don't view it as um, we should think about it in terms of how much we pay in versus how much we get out. And if it's too lopsided, it's theft. Rather, the whole perspective of the welfare state is that a person's need is an entitlement. His need is the standard of what he's owed by others, not his productive achievement. And so when we give to somebody in need who needs a retirement or needs health care, it's not that we are paying him what he earned. The, the comparison is not your, uh, how much income did you pay into the system versus how much you pay out. The moral perspective that we're taught to take is, are you getting what you need? Now, it's true that social security and Medicare have been presented as social insurance. And we've been taught that it is an earned benefit because we pay into the system, but the whole, but there's a moral perspective that is the welfare state is fundamentally good, not because it gives us what we earned, but because it gives people unearned benefits that they need. And so in that sense, it's not seen as theft if an elderly person gets way more from the welfare state than he paid if it's something he needs. If we're taking from younger Americans who can support themselves and giving to a person in need, that isn't stealing, that isn't theft, that's doing our moral duty. And that's why if you uh, listen to, for instance, Senator Elizabeth Warren, if you present her with hey, isn't Social Security headed for crisis? Isn't there something really wrong that has to be corrected there? She says, yeah, there's something wrong, but it's look at how small Social Security benefits are. Small in relation to what people paid in taxes? No. Small in relation to what they need or what at at least Elizabeth Warren alleges that they need. And so should we try to better match Social Security payments quote, benefits to people's Social Security taxes? No, we should make them more generous regardless of what people paid in Social Security taxes. The fact is that the welfare status view is that you don't really earn anything except handouts, and you earn that through your need. 
that a person who, quote, earned something just got lucky. He didn't build that. Society provided it for him. Society made it possible by giving him roads and an education and so on. And so none of us really earn anything. And so when the government takes and gives to people in need, it's not theft. What is theft? Your greedy desire to keep what you, quote, earned rather than hand it over to the elderly who are in need. All of this, all of this remains unaddressed by the generational theft argument. And indeed, the generational theft argument ultimately concedes the whole perspective of the welfare state. There's a lot more to say on this issue, on the welfare state in general, and I hope that you will go to Amazon.com and uh, look up my book, Roosevelt Care, How Social Security is Sabotaging the Land of Self-Reliance. And if you go to EndTheDebtDraft.com, you'll also find a free PDF of the book, of the entire manuscript that you can read, that you can share with your friends, that you can share on social media. And I really encourage you to help get this book into the right hands because the the whole essence of the book is it's divided into two parts and the first part which i regard as the most important is retelling the story of america before and after the welfare state and showing that far from being one of our great achievements it is one of america's greatest mistakes and then the second half builds on that foundation by giving a a new moral analysis of the welfare state and of social security in particular and explaining why the only moral thing to do is to abolish the welfare state. There's not really another book out there like that. And this is book is this book has something I think is critical today when if we don't change course, if we don't put an end to the welfare state and to the crisis that's on the horizon, um, we're really headed for some bad times. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit EndTheDebtDraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash DebtDraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.